Well, it's good to be together with God's people. I pray you're encouraged today, that God will fill you with hope and joy. I encourage you, if you would, um, turn with me in your Bibles or on your phones, whichever you prefer, to 1 Samuel chapter 16, Pew Bibles, or page 238. The large print is 282. So please follow along. And as you're turning there, just wanted to mention, where are we in the book of 1 Samuel? Well, we're in chapter 16. And that means that we're right in the middle because there's 15 chapters before it and 15 chapters after it. So we're right in the middle. Now, the original text didn't have chapters, but the chapter dividers did a really good job because this is a key turning point in the story of First and Second Samuel. And in the First Samuel, it is the center. And now we see that Saul's been disqualified as unfaithfulness, his not believing in God and trusting in him, his disobedience has disqualified him to be king. And now the focus all turns on to David. David now becomes the focus of the rest of First and Second Samuel. David is God's king. He's a man after God's own heart. David is the standard by which all other kings are going to be measured from now on in the history of Israel and Judah until the final king, the true king, the glorious king, Jesus Christ, has come. And now we see who's truly king. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Let's read the first five verses together. Hear God's word. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Lord God, take your word. Meet the needs of your people that are gathered here today. Speak to us together as we seek to serve you for the glory of your great name. We ask this in Jesus' name, our King. Amen. God sees, God knows, God is working. God is working. Go, and I will show you what to do. Samuel was stuck. He was paralyzed with grief over Saul. He's working this over in his mind. At least that's the way I, I, I picture it, right? He's, it's messing with his head. When he's awake during the day and he's not distracted by the usual routine of whatever work he had to do, his mind goes to Saul. When he's lying awake at night and can't sleep, his mind goes to Saul. He even has weird dreams about Saul. Uh, at least that's the way I picture it. 
He's troubled by Saul. He's thinking, God, why did you ask me to even appoint him as king, to anoint him? Why didn't Saul listen to me? I'm God's prophet. I'm the one sent by God to help him serve you. Now what's going to happen? It's the old one step forward, two or three or four backwards. We don't seem to be getting anywhere. We often experience that in our lives, don't we? So we can understand Samuel's disappointment, why he's just stuck here, paralyzed with no action, because he's angry with Saul. I mean, Saul purposefully disobeyed God's word to him that Samuel had told him straight out, and he tried to, to, to excuse himself. Samuel, again, was his mentor, and, and there was a big rift in their relationship in chapter 15 when Samuel said, I will not go back with you to the people, Saul. The Lord has rejected you. He's, he's picking out a neighbor of yours to take your place as king. Saul grabbed Samuel's robe as he turned and ripped it, and there was a rift in their relationship. It says at the end of chapter 15 that Samuel never saw eye to eye with Saul again while they were in this world while he was alive. That's a rift. So Samuel's stuck in anger and bitterness and disappointment with how God's working things out. And he's also afraid. Saul was so determined to keep his position as king that it sounds like he was ready to kill anyone who resisted that idea, even Samuel. But we see that God was working. God's in action. I've provided for myself a king. Samuel thought it had all stopped, but God was moving. God was working. God was moving forward. There was no retreat with God. It looks like God's, like we're, we're stepping backwards, but it's never backwards when we're following God. We may not see it, but God is willing, and he is moving forward with his plan. So he says, Samuel, get up. <laughs> Go, fill your horn with oil. I got work for you to do. Remember I told you about this new neighbor? Well, today's the day you're going to anoint the new king. So go to Bethlehem. I love this picture, too. When Samuel comes to Bethlehem, the elders come out all afraid, like, are you coming peacefully? Why? I mean, this is Samuel. This is God's prophet. Why would they be afraid of God's man? Well, at the end of chapter 15, just remember, he had hacked. That's the Hebrew word. I checked it out. The NIV says killed, but no. It says Samuel hacked Agag, the king, to pieces. He was angry. Now, there's a beautiful picture of Jesus holding lambs back there in the stained glass window, and that's a beautiful picture of our good shepherd. In my dark sense of humor, I've often wondered why I've never seen a picture of, of Jesus overturning the tables and whipping people in the temple. If that was memorial in my name, you know, if my name is, he must have been an angry guy. <laughs> wow. You don't, you don't turn your back on God. You don't disobey God, Agag. You don't take lightly this God who created you for service. So the elders were rightfully afraid. Maybe Bethlehem was a center for sheep and shepherds. We know that at least when Jesus was born. So I don't know if these guys in the city had stolen some of those sheep that they weren't supposed to take from God when they, when they killed all the Amalekites. So maybe they were a little afraid. 
But from now on, you know what's neat? The name Jesse and the tribe of Judah and Bethlehem would be forever in the minds of God's people as the place where God's king would, came from and would come to. When does, what does God do when his chosen ones like Samuel run out of hope? And we're stuck. When life is overwhelming us and we're only seeing loss and feeling disappointed, what does God say to us? What, is, what has God said to me? He said, I will show you what to do. And the I is in the emphatic position. I will show you what to do. I have this. I showed Abraham what to do. I showed Moses what to do. I showed Deborah what to do. I showed Gideon what to do. Samuel, I'll show you what to do. Go. And like Samuel, Elijah, he was messing with a king later on by the name of Ahab, who was disobedient and didn't hear his voice either, God's prophet. And he continually disobeyed. The king disobeyed. And Elijah never thought he'd be running for his life, but he was running for his life from Queen Jezebel. Elijah was surprised when he ran away and God fed him and nourished him and gave him rest. And he said, I'm not done with you, Elijah. Elijah said, I'm done here. Lord, take me. And God said, no. He spoke to him in that still small voice and said, I got work for you to do. God was going to work more miracles through Elisha, be more gracious to disobedient Israel, the kingdom of Israel, than through Elijah's ministry. It's amazing. God is always working. He was working. He is working. And it will never stop. So what's going on in your life this morning that has you upset, that has you troubled, that has you stuck, disappointed? What fears and doubts do you have about God's plan for you? What about for us as a local body? What disappointments do you have with people? I just know something's going on in your life. Something's going on in our lives together. And when all is bleak and when we're bewildered, What's God doing? We're doubting he's doing anything good, that maybe we don't have a part in his kingdom work anymore. God's working, people. God knows what he's doing. I have appointed myself a king. Go. The way forward may seem unclear, but we would be wise in our bewilderment, whether it's our personal lives or our lives as a congregation together, to never lose sight of God's clear commands. So if we don't know what else to do, go and make disciples. Be about the kingdom work of God. Sit under the instruction of God's word and obey it. Because we value God's word. At least we say that we value God's word so much that we want it preached and taught and discussed when we gather together often to encourage one another. So if that's the case, we should be making disciples wherever we're going, that we're going to sit under this word and we're going to value it highly. And Jesus is our example. So we're going to follow him and we're going to 
wrap a towel around our waist and we're going to wash the feet of people, we're going to be their servants because we value the word of God and we're going to obey it. We're going to put others' interests first the way Jesus did for me and came and died on the cross for my sins, your sins. We're going to do that. We're going to sacrifice so others can live because we value the word of God because we know it's true and we are going to go and we're going to obey it. What must we do to be doing the work of God? That was the question they put to Jesus. And in John chapter 6, he said, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. That's what we need to be doing. The work of Jesus Christ, because we believe he's the one God has sent. We declared it today at the communion table. You are my friends if you do what I command. Go, go, Samuel. I'm afraid. Go, I'll show you what to do. We need to watch ourselves because, secondly, God sees the heart. Let's look at verse 6 and read through verse 13. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him, for the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons passed before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for he will not, we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. God sees the heart. For the Lord sees not as man sees, the Lord looks on the heart. Isn't it amazing that Jesse, the dad, and Samuel, the prophet, both overlooked David. They overlooked God's choice. They overlooked the younger son, and that's a constant theme in the scriptures. I mean, Cain and Abel, Ishmael and Isaac, Esau and Jacob, Reuben, Judah and Joseph. And you would have thought that Samuel, by now, I mean, he's a prophet of God, right, Glenn? I mean, this is a guy who gets the word of God. Spoken to him and he was looking on the outside, and I mean, he just had a fiasco with King Saul, who, who was a head taller than everyone and looked kingly and acted kingly once he got to position. And it's like, why is he looking? Because he's like us. Our eyes and our ears deceive us all the time because we're not looking for God's anointed. We're overlooking God's choice. By the way, God gives us common sense. God bless you people who look at statistics 
and put it all together in charts and pie charts and explain it to people like me and say, oh, that makes sense. We need stuff like that. But on the other hand, no one felt it necessary to even mention David, let alone call for him. Too young? Doing the most menial job? Jesse and his brothers assumed David was out of the running. The supposed disadvantages in David's case were his advantages. Being the youngest, he was free from Eliab's, the firstborn's arrogance and expectations. I'm the guy. The shepherd boy was learning the true art of kingship, shepherding sheep so he could shepherd people. I need to use God's eyesight to overcome my biases. You know, verse 7, memorize that verse, reflect on it. God sees the heart. We look on the outside, we hear, we see what's pretty, what looks strong. God's not impressed. God's choices and appointments are based on the highest wisdom that he alone possesses. All the things that I value, that we value in the world, intelligence, education, looks, personality, they all seem to create fitness for a position in high service and in themselves, there are no value in God's sight. Take a step back and think about that. God sees the heart. God delights. God's delight is a person whose heart is chasing after God. Skip that one. Who could it be among us that we're overlooking because they're young, because they don't look right, they don't talk as well, they don't don't have the degrees? It could be teenagers, it could be a child, it could be a woman, a man. And God knows their hearts, and he wants us to see what God sees in the heart, and he wants us to encourage them. You know, we value equipping people for the works of the ministry. We say that. So how and what will we do? How are we going to do it? And what are we going to do so we learn the passions that God has put on people's hearts so we know how they're fit to serve God and find a spot for them? Are we overlooking saints? because they don't fit our criteria. How about the not yet saints that we say, I'm not sure God wants to save them. We would never say that, but we respond that way to people, don't we? Lord, help us not to overlook these people because I don't want, I don't want me, I don't want you, I don't want us to miss out on the very people God is sending to us to help us do the work of the kingdom. God sees, God knows, God is working. Just recall God's great character. He's holy and full of mercy and compassion. He's all-powerful and he's in control. He knows what he's doing. God knows the heart and his choices are always right. So ask God to help you and me and help us to see and to seek and to do to follow God when he says go to go 
because he's so wise. Thirdly, God knows who's resisting him. God is working, God sees, and God knows who's resisting him. Let's read verses 14 through 17. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold, how a harmful, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre, and whom the harmful spirit... And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to the servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. Do you find it amazing that it says, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him? Would God do that? We need to get a healthy perspective on our own troubles and how sin relates to it. Just remember, Saul and David were both anointed by Samuel. Their oil was poured on their head, which was a sim symbolic of the Spirit coming on them and filling them. And both Saul and David had the Spirit. In both men's cases, in certain places, it said the Spirit of God rushed on them. But now there's this huge contrast between David. In verse 13 it says, And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And now the Spirit of God departed from Saul, and he's being tormented. Your troubles and my troubles aren't always directly related to a specific sin. So we have trouble in this world because sin has brought a curse. Accidents and death and emotional pain and broken relationships are part of our experience. You've experienced them in some way. And God's forgiveness and powerful grace can help us overcome all those things through faith in Christ. But you see, Saul's habitual disobedience, his never coming to true faith in God, just giving lip service to faith in God. He was always saying, Samuel, let's go worship your God. It wasn't our God or my God. It was his God. He was like riding on the coattails of the great prophet and thinking it was going to help him stand with God. But the wicked are like the tossing sea. Can you picture it? Hear the waves? See the waves? You've been at the shore. You're Philadelphians, you go down the shore, right? But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. That's Isaiah 57. In Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 2, do not forget Hannah's song. Because in her song in chapter 2 are the themes that are covered through the rest of the book. And it says this in verse 9 of chapter 2. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And that is exactly what's being played out here. The wicked, Saul, 
is being tormented and being pushed away, and his life is like the ocean. It just never is at peace. I remember laying on the beach and hearing the ocean, and once in a while, it almost seems like the waves stop for just a split second, and then they hit again, don't they? Just stirring up the sand, the mud, and that's what's going on in Saul's life, and that's what will go on in your life if we disregard and do not obey the voice of God. Sooner or later, it will catch up with us. The wicked, the unbelievers think they will get away with it. But let me tell you, there is life after this. And you will give an accounting, every one of us, before Jesus Christ, the one who died for us and is called to judge us. And he will do it right. We will give an accounting. Are you ready? G. Campbell Morgan said this, the triumph of a person is God's triumph over them. Those who walk by faith with God will share in the joy of his victory, and those who resist the Lord will share in the wrath of his victory. You can share in the joy of God winning, or you can share in the wrath of his winning. Jesus said, come to me. All you who are, labor, who are labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Not the ocean waves, but you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And Saul was rejecting Jesus' yoke, so to speak. God's yoke. He was resisting it. He was refusing it. He valued his kingship and standing there over being in relationship and his standing with God. And he lost his soul and his life would be in turmoil. Saul, David, you and me, and the Holy Spirit. God gave him another heart when the Spirit came on Saul. David, it says, the Spirit rushed on him, and from that day forward, the Lord was with him. That's an interesting phrase, the Lord, from that day forward. Both Saul and David had qualifying Characteristics. They were both described, and we're going to read that in the next few verses, about being qualified, the looks, the sharpness to be king. They were leaders of men. But the difference was that Saul's heart in relationship with God was never mentioned. He never had a relationship with God. It was never characterized by him that the Lord was with him. Read this incredible true news story. Let me just read it. There was a hospital supply corporation that falsified its annual report so that the stockholders would think it was being more profitable than it really was. Happens all the time, right? So an auditing firm came in, but the company manipulated its inventory and moved the same goods to whatever warehouse the firm was inspecting. So when the fraud was finally discovered, the corporation sued the auditing company because they didn't discover the fraud soon enough. Isn't that crazy? We're guilty, but we're suing you because you didn't find it. We tried to hide it, and you didn't find it fast enough, so we're suing you. You didn't do your job well. 
Some people will never admit their guilt. And that's what Saul was doing. Never admitting his need that he was a sinner that needed salvation, that he wasn't obeying God. He didn't ask for God's mercy. In John chapter 3, got to go down this bunny trail because it has to do with the Holy Spirit. Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, one of the teachers, one of the Pharisees. He should know about the Holy Spirit. Jesus had an expectation that Nicodemus would understand how the Holy Spirit comes on a person and enables them to believe, but Nicodemus didn't get it. We read in John chapter 3, beginning at verse 3, and Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it goes or where it comes from. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? So what is it the Spirit of God needed to make Nicodemus understand? And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. I cannot believe that unless the Holy Spirit helps me. I cannot follow and obey Jesus Christ unless the Holy Spirit teaches and guides me. That's God's work. But then I have to believe. I have to receive it. There's this other side to it that sometimes we have a hard time connecting. It's a work of God, and yet I must believe it. And when I believe that, if we receive that to be true, listening to the Holy Spirit, then God will come in. His Spirit will fill your life. He will rush in on you, so to speak, and permanently reside with you and carry you on. That's the promise of the new covenant. God writes his law in our hearts. So when Peter preached in Acts chapter 2 and he, and he said, Jesus, the one you guys rejected, you crucified him. Well, he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. Well, what should we do, they said? We've killed our Savior. We've rejected the one God sent to save. We're really in trouble. And Peter said, change your mind about Christ. Repent. Turn from your old way of thinking and turn to Christ and you'll be baptized. You'll receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came in power in the Old Testament. It's not a new idea. It's just what's exciting about the New Covenant, the New Testament, is the Holy Spirit came on lots of people all at once. You can receive the Spirit of God when you believe, and you will have life everlasting. He will be with you from this day forward, the day you believe. That's the gospel, the good news. 
Saul experienced the power of God in his life, and yet he never surrendered fully to it. He was close to Samuel, who told him the word of God. He was used by God with the Spirit's power, but he never confessed his need and surrendered to God. Like Judas, one of the 12 disciples. If you are here today, and you've heard the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, then you are without excuse before Christ. If you've seen the transforming work of God in other people's lives who are our followers of Christ, and you've shared in their fellowship and enjoyed the blessings of being around God's people, but you have not made their faith your personal faith, if you have not received and believed and experienced the joys of Christ yourself, but have refused to trust him, then John 3, 17 and 18 are for you. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Believe and God will forgive you. Finally, fourth point, God is working. God is working. He sees the heart. He knows who's resisting him. It doesn't surprise him. And he's always being gracious and, and giving out his word and leading people to himself. And God is working and placing us in places of service. For the theme verse of this section, I just have, and David came to Saul and entered his service. Let me just read the ending verses of the chapter, if I can get back there in my Bible real quickly. Beginning at verse 18, one of the young men answered, they're looking for a lyre player, an instrument player. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David to his his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly, and so he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. God's way to leadership is through serving others. Just let's not forget that. What a story. David's the next king, and King Saul doesn't know that the next king's in his service. He's in his court. He's one of his armor bearers. And he's loving this guy for a little while. And we know that Saul wasn't the easiest boss to work for. That's going to be, if, read ahead if you haven't already. He needed David, but would soon see him as his enemy. Would David treat and honor God's anointed one, Saul, as he should? Would David use Saul's wickedness as an excuse to return evil for evil, treachery for treachery? What would David do, this man of God, after God's own heart? What characterizes me in my difficult relationships? You know, there's a constant in Christ's body, no exceptions. 
There's no one here that gets, you know, you're too important, so you don't have to serve like Jesus came and served you. You're too important. Tongue-in-cheek, folks, okay? David's going to learn obedience by trusting in God as he served Saul and ran for his life from, his, from the king who turned on him. Moses learned it in the wilderness. Joshua trained beside Moses. Jesus learned obedience, living in this world and resisting evil so he knows what it's like. Let me just say this. I know i got to close. It's time to go. Have you ever thought about if you've resisted service because you thought you were beyond that and you're missing out on God shaping you into a more holy, more loving person who's chasing after God's heart? God is working. Let's make it personal. Grace Chapel he has work for us to do. So go. Go where God tells us to go. See it and move with him. God sees your heart. Take that to heart. That's scary. We can pretend we're a friend of Christ and not obey. So am I really obeying his word? Or am I acting more like Saul when no one's looking? God knows who's resisting him, so don't resist him because it'll wear you out. It's like the ocean waves that never stop. They just keep churning it up, and your life's going to keep churning up. You'll never find peace when you separate yourself from God and God's word and his godly people who are chasing after God. And know God's method to shape you. We are where we are because God wants to shape us for better things, so believe that and move with God. Do not resist it, but let him shape you as you serve your brothers and sisters and the lost. Let's pray. Father and God, your word is so true. You have this story here for us to learn, to know, to understand it so that we can serve you, so that we can be people who are chasing after your heart. Spirit of God, convict us when we are pretending. Lord, convict us so we turn to you alone for our salvation. Speak to our hearts and meet the needs of them spiritually wherever they are. You see the, our hearts. You know us. Do your great work of mercy and forgiveness in us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.